the Fire Within Podcast. You need a sustainable plan, the right mindset, and the knowledge and inspiration to stoke the fire within. Just like the Phoenix, you can burn your old habits, never turn back, and emerge completely anew. There are no shortcuts. Welcome, Fire Within Nation. This is the Fire Within Podcast, where we talk about all things nutrition, fitness, and health related. I'm your host, Brandon Woolley, joined by my co-host, Joe. Good morning. Howdy. Oh, yeah, it's morning now. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, so today I'm excited. We have a guest, Mike Chappelle. Hey, Mike. What's up? How's it going, guys? I've been a trainer for a long time. I actually met him in Lifetime. I thought he was super smart, and I don't know if you remember this, but sitting in that back room, I said, if I ever get a podcast, I want you to be a guest. I do remember that. Yeah, so yeah. Here, here we are, like two years later, it actually happens. I'm pretty pumped to be here. <laughs> Mike's an expert in nutrition. He's an expert in exercise, and he's also an expert in intermittent fasting. I like being called an expert. It makes me feel Absolutely. good. Thank you. Boosting yeah. my self-esteem on Monday morning. Nice. <laughs> Before we dive into all that, just tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been a personal trainer for eight, nine years now. In 2011, I started, and I've done nutrition coaching for the past six plus years. More recently, just got a certification in holistic lifestyle coaching, so kind of incorporating more of like stress management, circadian rhythm, that kind of stuff, mixed in with fitness. Uh, when I started as a personal trainer, I was like most personal trainers early on, very terrible at what I did. <laughs> Basically just counting reps like, oh yeah, I'm just going to make up this random workout. From there, I learned that instead of trying to crush people every day, more people need help learning how to move properly. So I got into more corrective exercise. Thankfully, I'm now married to a physical therapist. So oh, kind of wow. helps handy. me. <laughs> it, it helps me cheat a lot with my clients because I can come home and be like, hey, I have a client who's got this going on. What can I do to make sure I'm not like, overstepping my bounds, staying within my scope of practice. So I kind of gravitate a lot towards that corrective exercise sort of thing. And then outside of like the gym and training space, offer like the nutrition coaching and helping kind of get people through various diets. How I consider myself kind of an expert is if there's been a fad diet out there, I've pretty much tried it on myself with the exception of being vegan. I basically hear about a diet, research it if it sounds interesting or like logically makes sense. I try to incorporate it, give myself at least a month. And if it works well, I'll keep certain thing, things. If it doesn't work well, I cut it out and kind of move on. And from there, I'm able to kind of, you know, course correct for people. If they're like, you know, I've heard about the keto diet. I want to try it. I'd be like, great, let's start. This is probably what's going to happen. If they start have it, hitting any roadblocks or speed bumps, I can tell them, yeah, like I felt that way too. Here's how you get through it. Things like that. So I can kind of offer that firsthand experience. And now... The topic of intermittent fasting, I started intermittent fasting probably seven years ago now. I heard about it from my cousin who got really good results with it, and I started with just the most basic method. It's called the lean gains method or the 16-8, so it's taking a 24-hour window, 16 hours fasted, eight hours fed, so basically just skip breakfast, and from there I've gone to everything, including one meal a day two extended fasts of 24 hours plus. So the longest I've done is a five-day fast. The only reason I stopped is because I got a cold and had kind of like judgment call. I wanted to keep going, but I wasn't sure like, do I want to keep stressing my body without food and with an illness? So I decided to kind of call that one quits. But yeah. That's pretty done. smart. So you went five days, no food. Correct. Five oh, days, yeah. just water with like <laughs> electrolytes mixed in because... If you do research on the extended fasts, most people tell you after a certain amount of days, you haven't put food in, you get dizzy, lightheaded, things like that. So by mixing in Celtic sea salt, some potassium, some like magnesium in your water, it actually helps keep your electrolytes up. So then you don't get dizzy at all. And then it's just kind of letting your body relax. And that's the best part about fasting is you give your digestive system an actual break from having to do what it's meant to do. And in that break, you kind of allow everything to kind of recycle and refresh. Then when you start eating food again, it's working optimally as opposed to being under stress the whole time. Yeah, now, that's interesting. Now, I know a lot of people when they cut carbohydrates or go low carb, they get dizzy and things. So do you think that that addition of the electrolytes would help subside some of those symptoms? Potentially. Yeah, because I know with low carb diets, you drop water weight really quick. So your body just kind of flushes stuff out, including electrolytes. If you eat carbohydrates, it's something like every gram of carbs, your body absorbs four grams of water to kind of like keep it in. So when you take the carbs out, your cells are holding on to all this water. So it dumps it out. Yeah. And with that, electrolytes are going to spill out. So your body needs those electrolytes 
rather than forcing it to pull it from like bone and other tissues. Which can then leach minerals and things like that. Exactly. So you just add it back into the water and feel good. Cool. Yeah. I like how you were into intermittent fasting before it was cool. It's like, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if, if I would say before it was cool, but yeah, like it was just something fascinating. And the thing about me is I, I try to be unconventional almost on purpose now, because if you look at the track record, like history of just fitness, nutrition, the industry, the conventional wisdom just isn't working, right? 30 years ago, People were saying, oh, obesity is on the rise, heart disease is on the rise, diabetes is on the rise. All of that stuff was increasing. All of the stuff that all of the big bodies, the American Medical Association, American Dietetics Association, the USDA, the FDA, anything that they do to change it hasn't fixed it. Some cases made it worse. Exactly. Like 11 servings of whole grains a day, folks. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that, uh, I can remember years ago. So before I moved down to North Carolina, I had a training business in New Jersey. And I wish I still had my old blog and like my old blog post because I wrote a whole blog post about the history of the food pyramid. Yeah. And it's like you can just Google it, look it up. The original dietitians that worked on the original food pyramid talked about the base of their pyramid was fruits and vegetables. And they had processed carbohydrates, sugar, and refined fats up at the very top. And meat, dairy, all that stuff was kind of mixed in in the middle. And they submitted that to the Secretary of Agriculture. And like a couple months later, when the final draft came out, all the dietitians were like, what the hell? They turned it upside down. Yeah. Right. And, you know, conspiracy theory, they get Lobbyists, into the whole, exactly, like that, yeah. the grain cereal lobbies. Yeah. And if you notice the original food pyramid, cereal is its own thing. <laughs> and then you progress several years. They go from the food pyramid to like the my plate, which I think was Michelle Obama. At least it was better. And, yeah, it, exactly. Definitely better. But like you look at it and- Milk is its own. It's food. its own freaking it's, right, it's not dairy. It's milk, and it's a circle next to a plate, yeah. so it makes you think, "Oh, I need to have milk at every meal." It, we just had an episode about cystic acne and all the garbage that dairy yeah, does. Whey protein. And, yep, yep. And then infinite ear infections for toddlers. It's mm -hmm. just insane. Well, and that kind of goes into my backstory a little bit. I found out from doing like an elimination diet and an anti-inflammatory diet that I have a big sensitivity to the casein protein that's in dairy. Now, as a kid, I was sick often. I was on antibiotics when I was younger. I'm finding this out now because I have a young nephew who's chronically sick. So I was asking my mom, I was like, you know, why is this kid always sick? Every time I see him and she's like, well, you were sick all the time. And now I have a, a one month old girl at home. So kind of starting to worry about yeah. like exposing her to illness and all that kind of stuff. So I apparently had a bunch of ear infections. I was on antibiotics a lot when I was young. Fast forward into my teens, I was on antibiotics for acne, and like my whole young life, I drank milk daily, like constantly, probably around like five to six glasses of milk per day. Holy I was cow. always congested, right? Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. But so like even in the middle of January, I'm in New Jersey, it's like 30 degrees outside, and I'm still congested as if I have seasonal allergies. My eyes are red, and... You know, doctors thought it could be asthma, but they weren't sure what it was. I'm like, what could I possibly be allergic to 12 months of the year? But I was always congested. Go on this one diet, and within two weeks, I could breathe. And I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. And it was all dairy. So yeah. I cut that out. And now, like, I'll have goat dairy because it has A2. No A1 casein. Exactly. Yeah. It's an A2 casein instead of the A1. And I feel great. Yeah. Awesome. Then I'm going to plug anybody with kids. Dr. Kelly Dorfman's book, Cure Your Child with Food, absolutely incredible. There's whole chapters on the whole dairy thing and ear infections and what to do about it and constipation and all the things they go through. Awesome. Um, but that's a phenomenal resource. We'll do an episode on it soon. So, good stuff. Nice. Yeah. I'll have to check that book out. Yeah. So do you think that a big part of this show is, uh, is like a sustainability thing? Mm -hmm. um, he's Brandon's always talking about you should have a sustainable plan for your whole life, not be up and down with diets. Is intermittent fasting best used as a tool for a corrective thing, like just giving your body a break every once in a while, or is it a long-term thing for some people? Awesome question. For me, intermittent fasting is probably, at least in my opinion, the best tool for just long-term lifestyle. So when I started intermittent fasting, I didn't change a thing about my diet. All I did was cut out my breakfast and whatever calories I was eating at breakfast, I incorporated in my lunch and in my dinner. It was basically, I started off my eight hours while I'm asleep. I would wake up in the morning and rather than eating breakfast the first thing in the morning, I would wait till about noon or one o'clock. 
And my breakfast was usually like eggs with cheese at the time because I didn't know about the whole dairy thing. So I was still eating cheese. It's like eggs, cheese, maybe like spinach or some kind of vegetable. Kind Big of glass of milk. Big glass of milk. I didn't do the milk. <laughs> Actually, did I? Maybe. Or there was probably a protein shake with it or something like that because my macros at that time were very different than they are now, which we could dive into if you like really want to. But I basically took the eggs had them with my lunch. So my lunch was, instead of just a big salad, it was a big salad with another plate of eggs. And then my dinner was just my normal dinner. So it was the same calories, the same food. I just shifted when I was eating it and felt a lot different and felt actually a lot better. So for me, intermittent fasting is just a way of structuring your eating around. For me, it simplifies my life. Rather than meal prepping three meals a day and planning out multiple snacks in between, all I have to do is bulk prepare, one to two meals, I can worry about. I go throughout my morning, you know, fasted, not eating anything. I can exercise on an empty stomach, whatever. Come home, have one giant meal or separate it out into two meals, whatever I'm feeling. And it allows that flexibility. An example would be like if I'm visiting my family. My wife's family's very big on breakfast. Sunday mornings, they'll get together. The whole family comes over. They make a big breakfast. That day, rather than skipping breakfast and then eating later on, I'll eat that big breakfast and then just not eat the rest of the day. You can kind of vary things up. You don't really necessarily fall that far off track as far as like... You can just slide your eight hours essentially. Exactly. So you can have that flexibility in there. When I look at intermittent fasting, it's not to me a diet. It's more so just a restructuring of how you eat, like a controlled eating window as opposed to just eating whenever. Yeah, and what I would add to that is, you know, there's probably not just one way to do it. And like, I'm a big proponent of like how Stephen Gundry would use it mm-hmm. just kind of as a, as a reset or a chance to let your brain have more time for that glymphatic system to work. So he would advocate every four to five days having a skipping dinner once. So that's yep. another tool to use. So if it's just crazy to think of doing that all the time, you know, just every couple of days you can skip a meal and give your body a longer time. And let's talk about some of the benefits like uh, autophagy and things like that. Okay. Um, awesome. So you'd probably do about as much or more research than I do on this stuff. So talk about some of the benefits of intermittent fasting like autophagy and what that is. Gotcha. All right. So going into the autophagy thing, I don't know how in depth your body basically has a pathway called the mTOR system or the mTOR pathway that basically regulates protein synthesis in the body, but it also kind of regulates all growth and repair cycles. And unfortunately, it also regulates the growth of growth you don't want, like cancer and tumors and things like that. So your mTOR system, when you're young, as a kid, you kind of want turned on almost all the time because it's going to help you grow bigger, taller, stronger, all that stuff. Once your growth plates fuse, you're not growing taller anymore. The only way you can grow is Ow. wide. <laughs> and potentially, if you have some other stuff going on, you could be growing growths inside your body that you don't want. So you want to start learning how to turn that mTOR pathway off. We're stimulated by glucose intake or carbohydrate intake and protein for the most part. So if you have amino acids and you have sugar in your system, mTOR is turned on. So your body is basically in an um, anabolic state, so it's building. Now, if you turn mTOR off, so basically you take out carbs, take out protein, you can have fats in there, so you don't have to be like zero calorie necessarily, but that's going to actually shut that system off and allow your body to go into its repair and recycle. So what autophagy is, is it's a cellular like mechanism where your body can get rid of old cells. So in a normal, like fully functioning, healthy human body, you should have cellular turnover happening fairly regularly. You have certain cells. I can't remember which one. I want to say it's like the retina of your eye is turned over like every week or every couple weeks. Your bones, it's every like seven years, something like that. Or it's connective tissue, like your collagen, your cartilage, that kind of stuff gets turned over like every seven years. So basically every Seven years, the body you have is a completely different body than what it was seven years ago. Yeah. I actually went into the body's exhibition in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and they had a whole display about that. And, yeah. And so people that don't think they can change chronic illness need to understand um, exactly. you actually can. Yeah. Yep. I feel uh, like that's good news for people that like hate their body. Just give it seven years. You'll have a yeah, whole just new exactly. years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just seven years. Exactly. Just seven. No problem. Yeah. No. But in an instant gratification society, seven years is eternity. But but if you're consistent with the sustainable plan, that's how people are overcoming, cro- you know, quotation marks, chronic illnesses. Exactly. One of the big chronic illnesses, kind of alluded to it a little bit, is cancer. Yeah. So what autophagy does and what causes a lot of different cancers in the system. And I'm not like an oncologist or anything like that, but you have cells that are old. They're not functioning properly. 
oftentimes they're referred to as senescent cells. So they're just like chilling there, not doing anything. Those cells, if for whatever reason they start to divide, can divide and the way it's dividing gets kind of thrown off, massive genetic mutations, and it just keeps dividing and keeps going. By allowing your body to switch into that like mTOR off system. Which happens during fasting. Exactly. So if you're not taking stuff in, your body's going to look within to figure out what it needs to keep, what it doesn't need to keep, and what it can recycle. So if you have old cells, your body will actually kill those cells. So those cells have a mechanism inside of themselves to basically blow up. And you have what's left of that cell is fats from the plasma membrane, all of the stuff inside your mitochondria, your Golgi tendon organs, your endoplasmic reticulum, all the fun words from biology. All those cells or those like organelles, they're comprised of proteins and things. They get all broken down, taken up into other cells, and then the body recycles all the amino acids, all of the fats, and creates brand new stuff. So to simplify this for the listeners, basically, if you're eating sporadically throughout the day, all day, every day, and you're constantly getting this glucose intake, your body doesn't feel the need to do that, so you're not getting rid of harmful cells and cancer cells as efficiently. And what fasting allows your body to do is to select those items and get rid of them. And that's Correct. one of the main benefits of intermittent fasting. Exactly. And I'm kind of glad that you mentioned taking in the glucose and like the sugar, the carbohydrates. So that's another big thing that intermittent fasting can help with. A lot of people, when they're going on like a nutrition journey, they're worried about their weight. And... Intermittent fasting allows your body's insulin levels to kind of drop down to their baseline level, which is super important to have. So when it comes to like fat loss 101, the basics, if you're keeping your insulin levels above baseline, you can't actually utilize body fat as a fuel source. Your insulin is a storage hormone. So if it's present in the body in higher than baseline levels, it's binding to your fat cells and binding to other cells, causing those cells to suck stuff into it. So you can't allow free fatty acids to come out of your adipose tissue or your fat tissue if there's a hormone sitting on the outside saying, pull everything in, right? It's almost like it's a one-way road. If there's cars going one way, you can't go the opposite way, right? So if you allow insulin to drop to baseline, it's now not binding to cells. If you're hypocaloric, then what happens is your body will access its fat. It'll send those free fatty acids out. They get metabolized into the liver, into ketones, and now you have another fuel source. Yeah. So that's kind of the big thing around fasting is allowing yourself to actually access body right. fat as right. a fuel. So every time you have carbohydrate source, your insulin spikes, that's that hormone telling your things to suck things in. If you can keep insulin down longer, you're going to burn fat for a longer period during the day. Exactly. Um, if you wake up and you eat a pastry and then you have a uh, muffin as a snack and then you're having fruit thinking, well, it's just glucose, glucose, glucose all day long, your body's uh, constantly in that hyper state of, of insulin and, and calories and, and it can never really access fat properly as a exactly. fuel source. Yep. And that kind of reminds me of one other point that I kind of wanted to bring up a little bit, especially if anyone's interested in trying intermittent fasting. My early days of fasting, I did the 16-8 fast and the 16-8 is basically where you take a 24-hour period and break it up. So 16 hours fasted, eight hours that you're eating. So basically whatever calories you're consuming, you're consuming within that eight-hour window. And I went from that diet, following it pretty strict, to then deciding I'm just going to listen to my body and eat when I actually want to eat. So rather than eating first thing at noon when the clock would strike noon because I was supposed to, I would just wait. And once I felt stomach kind of rumbling, like, all right, I'm actually going to eat. And I found it was closer to like 3, 4 o'clock in the evening I would have my first meal. Now, the one thing about that, it's all great allowing yourself to fast and have that time off. But if I could go back in time and redo things, I would have shifted when I was eating my food to eating things earlier in the morning and then going without food into the evening and going to bed on an empty stomach. That's another big important thing. One of the main benefits of fasting is it actually increases your body's growth hormone levels. Right. And I know there's one study, I don't remember who the researchers are, but they showed participants actually had a 2000% increase in growth hormone, which is an insane number to think about. Like you would think like 100%, like just doubling is impressive. Right. So 2000% increase. Now, why would the average Joe who doesn't care about muscle growth want an increase in growth hormone? So growth hormone, besides just helping muscle tissue grow and lean mass grow, it's a main fat burning hormone now, especially in women. So women growth hormone is like the number one hormone that they want to optimize to actually see the results that they're looking for. So most women want to quote unquote tone 
toning is losing fat and increasing lean muscle at the same time. So if you're optimizing growth hormone, you'll see fat come off and muscle increase. Now, what about for repair? Does it play a role in bone repair? Like let's say somebody had osteoporosis. Could an increase in growth hormone help with fixing that? Most definitely. Yeah. So that's going to be also one of the main benefits of just resistance training. So like overcoming an injury even. Exactly. So like if you have someone with osteoporosis, like a client, I'm going to have that person. Exactly. And have that person as soon as they're able to start load bearing, weight bearing, and trying to optimize that growth hormone. Now, kind of going back a little bit, like I mentioned for women, growth hormone is the most important thing. Men, we're lucky. We also have testosterone that helps us out, but still optimizing growth hormone is two parts of that or second part of that puzzle. So if you're optimizing testosterone and growth hormone, then you're going to see results super quick. Now, the thing is growth hormone has its biggest spike in the day, actually when you're asleep. So if when you're like at night, your body's in its rest and repair processes. So you're going to get big pulses of growth hormone while you're sleeping. What I was doing and back when I was working at Lifetime, I was doing one meal a day. So I would wake up early in the morning and I would fast the entire day. I'd get home by like 8.30, would eat from like 9 to 11 p.m. and then go to bed. And I would go to bed on a full stomach. And the thing is, you know, at the time I was eating a fairly balanced diet, mostly protein, healthy fats, but then I'd still have carb sources in because I'm lifting. And that whole time while I'm asleep, my insulin's higher than baseline and insulin and growth hormone work kind of in tandem. So if insulin's high, growth hormone's going to be low. If insulin's low, then growth hormone is basically allowed to be high. And I believe that growth hormone spikes around 2 a.m. Yes. Which is another reason why it's timing of sleep is important because of that circadian rhythm. Exactly. Yeah. They say for just optimal health to be ideally in bed, essentially trying to fall asleep by 10 p.m. And, and then real quick, so we talked on other episodes about the glymphatic drainage system with a mm-hmm. G for the brain. And that only activates at night when you're asleep. Correct. And what that does is it helps clear beta amyloid plaque buildup in the brain, which mm-hmm. causes Alzheimer's, dementia, memory loss. Exactly. So if you have a full stomach, you're not getting the full benefit because a lot of the blood that would be used for the glymphatic system is now going to digestion. Exactly. Um, to your point, uh, that being a, more of a mistake eating at night, it might be better to shift that eight hour window earlier Mm -hmm. so your body isn't processing all that food when the glymphatic system should be working exactly yeah and sleep is i mean just such a vital thing for your health just in general optimizing the glymphatic system that's going to help obviously with clearing stuff out of the brain the neurological system everything like that and that's really just going to be optimizing your entire life and the funny thing is when i started intermittent fasting i used to use the example of different and like various animals and stuff to kind of justify myself as to why I was only eating like once or twice per day in small windows and why I would eat so late in the evening because I was, I studied neuro back in grad school. So I have masters in biomedical sciences with a concentration in neuroscience. So getting into like the autonomic nervous system, your sympathetic, your parasympathetic nervous system, when you eat a lot of food, parasympathetic nervous system rises and that's your rest and digest your sympathetic, which is your fight or flight, where you're super energized, that actually decreases. So by eating a lot of food, you kind of allow your body to relax a little bit more. So I used to tell people like, you know, human beings are the only animals in the world or in existence that try to go to bed on an empty stomach. You should be trying to fill yourself up before you go to bed and all this stuff that was totally wrong. (laughs) It's like looking back on it, it's like, yeah, we try to go to bed on an empty stomach because our physiology actually is optimized doing that. Yeah. You know, you can look at like a lion in nature. It's going to catch a zebra, eat till it's basically stuffed, and then pass out on a rock in the shade <laughs> for a little while. But that's also in the middle of the day. It's not yeah. overnight. Oftentimes, they're going to bed a little bit hungry, waking up the next day, then going out to hunt. Someone on their journey to becoming an expert on things kind of does stuff wrong. Yeah, but yeah, because there's so much conflicting information, and sometimes it takes some time for the science to come through. Exactly. Um, but man, I could really go for a zebra steak right now. I mean, I'd try <laughs> it. Why not? <laughs> no, but kind of like what you mentioned, like the conflicting information that's out there. That's why it's so important to try things out, right? Yeah. Like I feel like part of my success as far as just figuring things out with nutrition and knowing so much is my willingness to experiment. Yeah. So like I'll have clients of mine ask me about a particular diet. If I haven't heard about it, I'll read up on it. If it makes logical sense to me, I try it and I learn something from it. Yeah. 
And I think I kind of take pieces of everything I read and research mm-hmm. and the parts that work for me, I keep and the parts that don't, I don't like, like, you know, Dr. Stephen Gundry is a perfect example. I think his stuff is phenomenal, but I won't follow it to a T unless I have cancer. Because exactly. um, to me, for my lifestyle right now, it's too extreme. But I know as I reduce the intake of wheat grain and corn, my health goes up and up and up. My skin gets better. Yep. I feel better, more energy, more weight loss. But I'm mm-hmm. not going to like only eat mollusks. And, you know, exactly. Gonna... Yeah. So like, like Stephen Gundry is a great example. So he's kind of the reason why I got into like anti-inflammatory diet. So I had a client of mine at Lifetime who had ulcerative colitis. And yep. she was like, what's this plant paradox diet? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I went home, researched it, bought the book, read it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I need to try it. Cause like it's written in a way that's very compelling. It makes it seem like everyone needs to avoid all of these plants, you know, anti-nutrients. And I tried the diet out within two months. I, without even trying to lose weight, I dropped 15 pounds, actually 20 pounds. So I went from 215 down to 195. I was 10 and a half percent body fat, which again, I wasn't even trying to lose weight. I was just following the diet. And I was like, yeah. this is incredible. Yeah. But coming off that diet, I started reincorporating foods and I found out that certain foods I'm fine with. Yeah. Comparing my wife to me, she does terrible on grains. Yeah. So even if it's organic, like non-GMO oatmeal, yeah. she'll still, hair starts falling out, probably some hormonal issues and gets really bad anxiety. I can eat bread all day, every day and be fine. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's not something that I do often, but I can. Yeah. And I don't feel bad doing it. Like, I mean, I feel bad to an extent because I know I'm probably most likely putting glyphosate and like pesticides and extra stuff in my system that I don't need. Yeah. But I know that for whatever reason, my gut lining Solid. has that, those defense mechanisms. Especially now that you quit drinking milk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I fast. So I allow my gut to kind of yeah. clear itself and replenish its defenses and stuff. Yeah, you can almost make yourself bulletproof. Essentially. When you incorporate you know, some of these things that are right for you. And exactly. the fasting helps with that. Yep. And there's actually, there's a diet out there called the Bulletproof Diet. No so. kidding. Not, not affiliated. Um, there's a guy out there. <laughs> his, his name's Dave Asprey. So he's he's not a physician or a doctor or anything. He's just done a ton of research on nutrition. Yeah. So his diet is... Similar to like an, an elimination diet, it's a cyclical ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. Basically, you stay in a fat burning state for the most part. One to two days per week, you'll purposely eat carbs. But for him, it's like, you know, berries, um, in-season fruit, sweet potatoes, or like at the potentially quote-unquote worst, like white rice. The things that aren't going to cause <clears throat> that much irritation in the gut. Yeah. And he has different lists of food. Like these are your go-to optimal foods. These are your suspect foods. And these are your kryptonite foods. Now, this might be a good time to spark some debate, white rice or brown rice. So it's funny. For years, I was on the brown rice side of things. Now I'm on the white rice side of things. Exactly. So it's the debate is... It's interesting because from, if you're looking at it from a gut health standpoint, I feel like white rice wins. Oh yeah. If you're looking at it from fiber and things like that. Exactly. From the other like health standpoints, like, you know, fiber or not spiking blood sugar, things like that, right? Your brown rice is going to win because the more complex it is, the lower glycemic it is. So white rice can be healthy for most people. It doesn't cause major gut issues, but if you're just housing bowls of white rice daily, chances are it's not going to be great for you unless you have the genetics and the body type that you do really well on high carbs. And there are some people out there, they can seemingly eat a ton of carbohydrates and it's actually optimal for them to do that. Other people, they, you know, look at a picture of like a cookie and they gain five pounds, right? Like that's, you know, if you're super sensitive to carbohydrates, eating white rice, probably not a great idea for you. Have you ever felt like you were just throwing weights around like an idiot at the gym, hoping to see some results? Or after weeks or months of working out, notice that the scale just isn't moving? You wouldn't cook without a recipe. So why would you train or start a weight loss program like the Swedish chef randomly throwing ingredients into a pot? You need a sustainable plan that's science-based and attainable. Fire Within has worked with thousands of clients and helped them reach their goals. So visit firewithinnf.com today. Get yourself the free ebook, read the testimonials, and choose a service that works for you. Choose from services like one-on-one nutrition coaching, one-on-one personal training, and more. Again, that's firewithinnf.com. 
Now, uh, we've talked about some of the benefits of fasting. can be more convenient for your lifestyle. Yep. The glymphatic system, autophagy, getting rid of cancerous cells and abnormal cells. What are some other benefits of intermittent fasting, if we were to bullet point a few things? So other benefits, I'd say just overall longevity. So the number one contributor to just a longer lifespan is eating the lower calorie diet. So if you look at all of like the blue zones in the world, so the blue zones are areas where they have a high population of people living to be 100 years old and over. They're all essentially like under eating technically. So like if you take someone who's my height, like 6'2", around 200 pounds, and my activity level to maintain my weight, I should be eating around like anywhere from 2,600 to close to 3,000 calories per day. According to conventional wisdom. Exactly. According to conventional wisdom. So take me, let's say I grew up in like Okinawa. Right. In that environment and with that diet, I'd most likely be consuming around like 2000 calories flat per day, but I would feel sustained. I'd feel fine. And the fact that I'm, you know, six to 800 calories under on a daily basis over time ends up prolonging my life because the more we eat and things like exactly. that. Exactly. Right? So it's I know there's more some aging. On that, there's a little bit. Yeah. And that's why I like to mix fasting in and why I started experimenting with extended fasts as well. Because yeah. if you're giving yourself longer periods of time without food, yeah. you allow yourself to kind of cleanse your system. And when you do start eating again, everything's fresh, everything's new. Yeah. And that period that you're not eating, obviously you're under calories. So you're setting yourself up. If you look at your calories over the course of your entire life, lowering it yeah. pretty substantially and potentially increasing your yeah. lifespan. Now, I'd say for our average listener, you know, they don't have the time or, or even willpower to try different things and see what works. And maybe a hardcore fast isn't right for everyone. But what I am gathering is that everybody could benefit from occasionally skipping a meal or two. Exactly. Or at least experimenting with shifting when they eat and, and give it a couple of weeks to see how it affects their body. Definitely. Um, so like, like for just the average listener, what I would recommend, I mean, as far as like just general healthy eating and not going like super strict on like a ridiculous diet or anything like that. You can look up like particular resources. I know Dr. Mark Hyman's really good with a lot of his info. He has, he has a book called Food, What the Heck I sh yes. What the Heck Should I Eat? And it's amazing because it basically goes through each like macronutrient ca category and tells you what are the best options, what are options are okay, and also how it affects just like the world, like socioeconomic climate, all that kind of stuff. So it ends up being like it's super informative, but following that diet, and even just doing like, like what you mentioned before, taking one day where like you just don't eat dinner or like there's one method, it's called the eat, stop, eat method to intermittent fasting, which is basically what they call a five, two. So five days of the week, you eat just everything completely normal. Two days per week, you have 500 calories or less. So that's basically breakfast or lunch. And then that's all you have that day. That might still be a little bit extreme, but you can start off bumping that up to say a thousand calories or like 1200 calories. So Wake up in the morning, have a light breakfast, have a light lunch, skip dinner, and then over time as you get used to that schedule, just take out either the breakfast or take out that lunch so you're eating that. For my like extended diet that I kind of did, or my like extended fasting experiment, I started with like a five-day fast, which I built up to. It wasn't like right off the bat, I was just not going to eat food. So I did a 48-hour fast first, I ate normal for one day, and then I did a three-day ate normal for a couple of days, and then I did a five-day. And after the five-day, I settled into, instead of a five-two, just a four-three. So it was, I would fast Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. I ate Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, it wasn't like a super strict, oh, I'm only going to eat within these hours. It was, I woke up in the morning, didn't feel hungry. By around like 10, 30, 11 a.m., I started to feel hungry, so I would eat. And I just ate like a normal meal. Fast forward a couple hours, I started feeling hungry again. I would eat another meal, and then I go into the next day, which I wasn't eating again. And that seemed to work out great for me. It felt fairly sustainable, to be honest, for the average person, probably not the best method, just because, you know, you want to go out for, like, breakfast or brunch or something like that on a Sunday yeah. morning with friends. It's like, oh, I'm not eating today. Yeah, or if you have you a know. family. Exactly. You know. So... You know, mixing in those days here and there is definitely beneficial. Yeah. Now, who is intermittent fasting not for? Great question. I don't know. To be honest with you, I feel like most people can benefit from some form of it. I know 
there are a lot of women who, when they're getting close to like optimal body fat percentage or potentially getting almost too lean, doing extended fasts or even like a 16-8 fast can throw off menstrual cycle um, and cause issues. So for them, they do better with more of a 14-10. But honestly, most people can benefit in some way. And even the people that are listening to this and they're like, this guy Mike's crazy. I can never (laughs) skip these meals and stuff like that. If you look at an average day eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, you're still fasting while you're asleep. So all that is, is, you know, assuming you're getting enough sleep, at least eight hours without food. And then all you have to do is just add a couple more in the morning if you're not eating breakfast like first thing in the morning. I got to admit, even when I was a nutrition coach, when I first heard about intermittent fasting, I thought it was nuts. Um, Same way. Yeah. I I remember talking to my cousin. It was years ago. We were at Thanksgiving, and he had lost a ton of weight. So my cousin's a big guy. He's like 6'4", and prior to this, he was probably a little over 300 pounds, and he was around like 250, maybe 260 at the time. And he was like, you know, I lost about 60 pounds just doing this. Yeah. And he followed the lean gains method. So a Swedish bodybuilder named Martin Burkhan kind of like coined it or brought it to like popularity or whatever. And so like you can go on his website. He's gotten a little bit crazy lately, <laughs> I guess for lack of a better term, not to like bash him if he ever yeah. hears this. Sorry, Martin. But um, <laughs> but yeah, you could follow his like basic diet, like just from his original website. And that's what my cousin did and lost like a ton of weight. And, you know, when I first was reading it, I was like, this is insane because all throughout my education taking just like intro nutrition classes and stuff like that in undergrad and then just becoming a personal trainer everywhere was six meals per day. You need to stoke your metabolism first thing in the morning by having a big hearty breakfast and you need to keep that whole grains. Exactly. (laughs) Whole grains. And you need to keep the metabolism burning all throughout the day. And yet all of the research and all of like just now what I consider now like logic behind it, your metabolism, if you don't eat, can't slow down. Like if you think back to like ancestral periods, hunter-gatherers in times of famine, if after six or eight hours without food, their metabolism slowed down, they would have no energy to go hunt. They wouldn't actually be able to catch a deer or a woolly mammoth or something like that, right? So in short periods and even periods up to like five or seven days, assuming you have enough fat on your body to sustain it, your metabolism stays up. The whole like, oh, I'm going to crash my metabolism by not eating is actually a huge myth that I feel like hopefully people can start to shift away from the discomfort people feel with intermittent fasting or just skipping a meal comes from more of the un- like discomfort from change as opposed to, oh, I'm going to be like hurting my body. I'm worried about it. It's more so I'm going to do something that I'm not used to. Yeah. yeah. Now change topics just a little bit. Do you have a personal transformation story of what got you into all this or, or any point in your life where you made a dramatic shift into uh, like what got you into health and fitness? So what got me into health and fitness, I mean, I started as an athlete my entire life. So growing up, I played soccer, basketball, baseball when I was real young, that shifted to football in middle school instead of soccer. And then in high school, I switched to throwing shot put and discus and track. I started doing a lot of like sports specific training because I was trying to play football in college. I tried to walk on at the University of Maryland. Unfortunately, I didn't make it. Long, sad story. I was kind of like real upset about it for a long time. It was like a crisis of identity where I identified myself as an athlete for the longest time and suddenly I wasn't an athlete anymore. So that whole crisis of identity spiraled into me becoming a very stereotypical college student almost like a frat guy, but not in an actual frat. So like, <laughs> so basically like my freshman year of college, I tried to walk on at the University of Maryland. They had one spot open for a freshman. I was in the top five and the coaches were all like, like, like they called me in and were like, listen, if this were any other year, you'd be on the team. But we only had one spot. So I didn't make it and I asked them for a lifting program. So they gave me one that was like two years old. And in my fall semester, not eating healthy food, I bulked up from like 225 at my tryout to 240. And I was 240 like muscular and I was benching like 310. My biggest squat was 500 pounds. I don't remember my deadlifts. It was somewhere in like the 460, something like that. Not saying this to brag, but just saying I used to actually be a really big guy. Went from 240 and muscular going into my sophomore year where I missed the tryout. And that was just me being lazy and not calling the coaches early enough. Yeah, I was kind of like depressed after that. And I shifted from being 240 and muscular to being about 245 and kind of chunky. And 
getting into like being a personal trainer, all that stuff. I was like, all right, I need to fix myself. And I started lifting heavier again, but still wasn't eating super great. Like I was still eating dairy, all of the pro-inflammatory stuff. I was following all of the bodybuilding advice. One, at least one gram per pound of weight for protein. So I was eating like, you know, 200 some grams of protein a day. And, you know, lots of white rice, lots of potatoes, vegetables, like a decent amount, but I wasn't like stressing the vegetables. Didn't really see great results. Tried intermittent fasting. Felt better when I was doing that. I saw some weight come off. I got down to about maybe 225. And that's kind of where I maintained for a long time. And that's what kind of started me on my nutrition experimentation. It was more so I wanted to fix myself and get myself down to a healthy body weight and body fat percentage. And I knew I was probably floating right around the 20% body fat range. Now, when I'm working with clients, I always tell my male clients, we want to get your body fat percentage probably between 11 and 15%. Any lower than 11%, unless you're trying to be a competitive bodybuilder, there's no need for it other than just like being purely aesthetic, like, oh, I'm jacked and ripped. But there can be issues, especially if you get like really sick or in like an accident or something like that. So I started experimenting with just a ton of diets, trying your low-carb, high-fat diet. Not quite keto, but still just like a general low-carb diet. Had a carb cycling, just tracking calories if it fits your macros. What was the worst one you tried? Ooh, uh, I wouldn't call it the worst one, but the one that just didn't do anything because I was already intermittent fasting at the time was a diet called the half day diet. Oh. So the, the premise behind this diet is you take half of the day. So like your morning and lunch and snacks early in the day and stick to like virtually no carbohydrates. So it's meat, potato, or not potatoes, uh, meat, vegetables, or like eggs, high fat, good proteins yeah. with the premise of you put any sort of carbohydrate in gets converted into sugar, sugar hits your brain, pleasure centers, and then you start craving it throughout the rest of the day. Oh, so yeah. It's kind of avoiding the temptation and the cravings. So you just shift your carbs to the last meal of the day and you get basically get to save up all of your carbs. So you get to have like one giant bowl of like rice or like a huge sweet potato or something like that. Yeah. And then you go to bed. Now, knowing what we know now about glucose and uh, insulin, system, all these lymphatic things, system, yeah. exactly, and you know, inhibiting growth hormone and stuff. Probably not the best method, but also for me, it didn't work because I was already intermittent fasting. So I was already going low carb throughout the day. Anyway, I would wait until the evening to eat and that's when I would have my carbohydrates. So I was like, Oh, let me just try to push my carbs back later. So it became instead of just like, all right, I'm breaking my fast at four o'clock with like an apple before I have a meal. It was like, I'm just diving right into the meal, having my apple as part of like a dessert then after my dinner. So it didn't really do anything. Not to say it's not a bad diet to try. I liked it because, you know, you don't have any carb cravings, but that's also one of the benefits of fasting is you're not putting that potentially addictive stuff in your system. And then you don't have those cravings later on in the day. At least if you're structuring it to eat later on. Now, if you're eating first thing in the morning, which is more of what I advocate now, although really I kind of recommend like a late morning afternoon eating kind of around that time. Yeah. If you're e- eating high carb, you're still going to have some cravings later on in the evening. But, right. Um, but yeah, that diet didn't work great. And then I also did like lacto-ovo vegetarian, which I still had yogurt and I still had eggs and cheese. Yogurt, cheese, mess with me. <laughs> I was also eating a lot of lentils. And this is back before I read anything about- Lectin the, protein. Exactly. And, and that's one thing that I took from the plant paradox is I've found that certain lectins I am sensitive to. So like I don't eat squash anymore. Like it just, it does not agree with me at all. And I feel really bad. Like we had uh, friends of ours when my wife was pregnant and, you know, delivering, they made us this really awesome veggie lasagna. Yeah. But instead of noodles, it was just layers squash. of zucchini and squash. And I, I ate it one day and just felt off the next like three days. And was like, I yeah. can't eat this anymore. Yeah. So lectins, beans, things like that, I'll keep in my diet, but I always pressure cook them. So we have an instant pot now and it's amazing. Yeah. So to throw them in, you know. Pressure cook for like yep. 15, 20 minutes and you're good. My understanding is the only thing that you can't pressure cook lectins out of is uh, oatmeal and corn. Correct. So but, yeah. so if you pressure cook squash, have you ever tried that and seen if it was a difference or no? I haven't. Because it was such a bad experience. Yeah. yeah. But also at the same time, like squash, zucchini, they're not, in my opinion, not the most flavorful vegetables. So if I could, if I don't ever well, I like eat. I like them sauteed with onions. It's hot. Like I could yeah. see that, but at the same time, it's like you could also... Replace that with something else. You could. With onion. Yeah. So for me, it's like, you know, these aren't 
things that I like love so much. Like if I had some sensitivity to like broccoli or Brussels sprouts, I'd be super bummed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So like that, that would be a little bit tough, but yeah. So like that diet, you know, lacto over vegetarian didn't work great for me. Yeah. The one thing now, like kind of how you mentioned before, like you do research and kind of take certain things that work for you. That's kind of what I do with my experimentations is, you know, I tried that diet and I was like, all right, well, things that I learned, I don't need to rely on meat for my protein. So prior to that, I was still consuming almost 200 grams of protein per day. It was whey protein shakes, but I was also taking like a family pack of chicken breasts, which, you know, up north we have Wegmans. They're now gradually coming down to North Carolina, which makes me very excited. Yeah, they're you, great stores. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. But you get a family pack of conventionally raised chicken breasts, which now I try to avoid. But I would basically take the entire pack, throw it in a crock pot on like Sunday or Monday. And that was like my meal prep for my protein for the week. Yeah. And then I would basically take a plate and half my plate was just like pulled chicken. Yeah. So following that like uh, vegetarian diet, I would cut my chicken down a little bit and add lentils in. So now yeah. I'm having more vegan protein. Fiber, yeah. Exactly. More fiber, some more carbs, but I was also cutting out rice, your regular like white potatoes, those things like that. So I was able to make like some little shifts to it, but it wasn't a diet that overall I was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life kind of thing. Yeah. Now uh, we got to wrap up here. Uh, One of the things I always ask my guests before they leave, and this is talking directly to the listeners. If um, somebody wanted to make a health change in a positive direction, no matter what their goals were, what are the top three things you would have them do? Yeah. So top three things first off is sleep. So I come in here Today, I'm sleep deprived. I have a one month old at home. I also worked super early this morning. So I'm running on like three and a half, four hours of sleep right now, which makes me seem like a hypocrite. But uh, prior to having a child, my wife and I, we prioritize sleep minimum seven hours. So even my early mornings, like I'd go to bed at like seven, seven thirty because I'm waking up at three thirty in the morning. Now it's thrown off a little bit. But once our daughter gets a little bit older, more independent, we're going to be shifting back to that strict sleep schedule. So prioritizing sleep. Now, and I'm no sleep expert or anything, but I've done some research on it. It just syncs up your whole circadian rhythm and your body's just natural hormonal cycles. If you're not sleeping enough, your cortisol is going to be thrown off. Cortisol thrown off, which everyone likes to say cortisol is high. It's kind of a misnomer because your cortisol cycles throughout the day. So like first thing in the morning, there should be a massive spike in cortisol. And it drops if, throughout the day. Exactly. And it drops and it kind of cycles up and down and like it you know, 2 to 3 p.m., there's a dip, and that's where everyone kind of gets tired when they're sitting at their desk at work because they're bored. So you want to kind of optimize that. And if you are not getting enough sleep, your spikes in cortisol are going to be lower, your dips are going to be higher, and you're basically flatlining it instead of allowing the normal cycle through. That leads to cravings because, especially for carbohydrates. It has to do with blood sugar too. Exactly, and carbohydrates actually help to kind of almost mimic the correct cycle because if your cortisol is off, Blood sugar can drop, so then you yeah. raise it by eating and potentially yeah. less healthy foods. So the first so. thing would be sleep. The second thing would be... Second thing would be some kind of movement. Now, yeah. when it comes to movement, you can just start with walking, Yeah. right? Everyone can benefit from walking, even if it's just like 15 minutes a day. So the way I try to break down fitness and like movement to people is if you look at it on a continuum or like a spectrum, you have ultra low intensity on one end and super high intensity on the other end. Your low intensity is going to be walking, non-heated yoga, anything that you can control your breathing and you're not going to get super out of breath or super sweaty doing. And then your high intensity is going to be like your sprint intervals, your heavy weight training, things like that. Ideally, those are the two ends of the spectrum you want to work out on. Everything in the middle you can do if you enjoy it. So if someone comes to me and is like, Mike, I want to start getting healthy. I'm going to start jogging. I'm going to tell them my honest opinion that you should probably start with walking because jogging, if you're, say, jogging 20, 30 minutes or even longer, all it's going to do, it ends up beating up your joints and it gradually increases your cortisol levels the entire time. So there is such a thing as good stress and bad stress, but all stress is summated on the body. So even if it's exercise-induced stress, it's still going to raise it. With that intensity spectrum, your high intensity, if you're running a sprint or, you know, doing like a heavy squat or heavy deadlift, Your cortisol is increasing a little bit while you're doing that maximum effort, but you stop and your body actually learns how to metabolize cortisol quicker to get it back down to baseline. So it makes you more efficient at regulating your body's stress levels. 
if all you're doing is jogging for an hour, you might burn a bunch of calories, but that entire hour, your your cortisol is drifting up and then it gradually comes back down. So there's no training to like make it quicker or whatever. Think of exercise on a spectrum. Start with your low intensity as you get more confident with it. Then you can kind of go into more of the like heavier weight training or like sprint intervals if you're able to do it. Yeah. So at the very least, some kind of movement daily. And then if you're kind of structuring out like fitness during the week, balance the two. Yeah. So do high intensity twice per week, do low intensity two to four times per week. Yeah. So walking should kind of be daily. You can do yoga like once or twice, high intensity a couple times or a few times per week, depending on what you enjoy. Yeah. And then what would the third thing be? And the last thing would be nutrition, which is kind of where... I tend to focus and with nutrition, I've kind of alluded to it before. I have a very big, like just curiosity about nutrition. So I hear information that's out there. I read it. I naturally want to try what logically makes sense to me. And if it doesn't make sense, then I just kind of push it aside and say, all right, that was interesting, but I'll move on. If you as a listener can just cultivate the tiniest bit of curiosity about yourself and how your body adapts to different nutrients and different foods, it's going to go a long way. And like the easiest thing, so like I've talked about trying various diets and like, you know, just doing one thing for a month and then trying the next thing and the next. For a lot of people that requires a lot of like willpower and it's pretty tough. So you can pick one thing, whether it's like tracking macronutrients or you hear about the keto diet and you're like, oh, I want to try that. Look up information on it, try it and see how you feel. And, and then if you don't have time for that, you could always hire a professional. Exactly. And that's where the value of a coach comes in. Like one of us guys. Exactly. Yeah. So what we can do then is actually sit down and talk and see where you're at, what you feel like has worked well for you in the past, what hasn't, and give you like at least a starting point. And then every few weeks, check in. Things are going well. Let's keep doing what you're doing. Things aren't doing well. Let's kind of course correct so you can drop fat, increase carbs, drop carbs, increase fat, change things around or whatever. So then you gradually, over time, learn what works best for you. But the thing is, if you can make eating more of a hobby as opposed to just this topic that seems so overwhelming and so confusing for you, it's going to be super beneficial. And the thing to keep in mind is also immediate change doesn't happen ever. It's all going to be gradual. Like I know, I know a lot about nutrition now because for the past like seven years, I keep experimenting with things. So yeah. I have seven years of knowledge just doing my research, but then also my own experience with it. So if you think about take just the rest of 2020 and every couple of months, just try something new with your diet. By the end of 2020, you're going to be you know, You'll significantly learn a lot about further what works along. And what doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the thing is with diets, especially what works for you is going to be completely different than what works for everyone else. And that's why the fat diets don't work right like they're not catered to you specifically exactly like generic cookie cutter yeah like i kind of alluded to like you know i experiment with fat diets but i don't stay on them forever because they serve their purpose they help me learn something that i incorporate and then move on to the next thing all right so we have sleep movement and focusing on nutrition you're giving us a lot to chew on today and we really appreciate you coming on the show. But thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you sharing your knowledge uh, with us. The listeners, if you like what you heard, feel free to write us and uh, we'll have more content like that. If you have any questions for me or for Mike, send them in at uh, firewithinnf.com. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you did, uh, go check us out at firewithinnf.com. You can subscribe to our newsletters and make sure you never miss an episode or any other content. Also, be sure to follow us on social media.